Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our copies of God's Word and turn again to the book of Proverbs. If you've been coming this summer, your Bible's already marked here. We are spending uh, 16 messages, 8 on Sunday morning and 8 on Wednesday evenings. In the book of Proverbs, our text today, chapter 13, verse 20, just one verse. The title of the message today, Walking with the Wise, Choosing Your Closest Friends. Now, for the last three Sundays, we've been uh, looking at what the Bible has to say about some very heavy and, and weighty subjects. Uh, for three consecutive weeks, we heard sermons on sexual immorality, alcohol abuse, and last Sunday, abortion. And I want to thank you personally for your prayers of encouragement as we uh, walk through those difficult subjects. We have uh, two more Sundays in the book of Proverbs counting today. And at first glance, the subject matter may seem to you much lighter and even uh, of less importance than the previous messages. But I would argue that the next two sermons might be the most important in the entire series. See, next week we're looking to the Proverbs for wisdom on choosing a marriage partner. And I often tell my four children, all of whom are still at home, that outside of following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the most important and life-altering decision they will ever make is who they marry. And so if you have a child, a grandchild, or a neighbor child that uh, aspires to be married, make sure they're here next Sunday morning. Um, but today, the title of the message, as I said, Walking with the Wise, How to Choose Your Closest Friends. Now, throughout the series of Proverbs, we've picked up on a theme that Solomon has as he's training his own son. And that theme is our path, our walk. Paul uses that same terminology in the New Testament to describe our ordered behavior, the things that we do habitually over a lifetime, the way we act, how we make our decisions, how we speak to other people. Because he understands, as Jesus taught in Matthew, that there is a path that leads to life and eternal joy. And there's a path that leads to pain and eternal death. And Solomon, as any loving parent does, is trying to influence his son to choose the path of life. Now, Solomon knows, however, that he won't always be around. As you know, as these parents who stood before us holding their infants in their arms know that they won't always be around to help their children choose the right path. So it's very important that we teach them how to choose friends, how to choose a life's mate. And we're going to look at those two subjects over the next two Sundays. So Proverbs 13, 20, one who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. It's so short, I'm going to read it twice. One who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his word. Now you'll notice that I said the title is How to Choose Your Closest Friends. Uh, don't walk away saying, Pastor said that we are to shun and have nothing to do with lost people. We would be failing our Lord. We cannot fulfill the Great Commission if we sequester ourselves away from the world and only interact with other Christians. What I'm saying is, that we will never fulfill the Great Commission in isolation. We have to be in the world. We have to be out there. We're to be salt and light. For salt to be effective, it has to permeate the culture, to preserve it. 
because our world is headed in the wrong direction. We have to shine the light into the darkness so that people may know Jesus Christ. But I believe the Bible does teach that for believers, our closest friends and confidants, and certainly the ones we choose to marry and spend a lifetime with, should be believers in Jesus. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. And we most always apply that to marriage, but I think it's applicable to all relationships of life. And so let's begin with sort of a defense of why I think it's important to preach a sermon like this. The importance of friendship. The importance of friendship. I think there's a great irony in the world today and probably in this very room. I suspect about 98.5% of you have some sort of device on your person, either in your pocket or your purse, if you're a lady, that will keep you connected with almost any other person on planet Earth in some way. And yet, in the midst of a culture and an epic of history that has the potential for such communication and closeness, we are having an epidemic of loneliness. Because we have found by experience that friendship's not as easy as pushing a button on social media. We have to invest in it, and we have to make wise choices. And so I don't think there's many people in this room that would argue the importance of friendship. In fact, many of you are probably thinking, well, why even spend a point on it? It's, it's self-evident to most of us. Humans are born with a desire and a need to be around others and to interact and communicate. Now, to be sure, there are a variety of personality types represented in this room. There are some of you that are outgoing and gregarious, and you seek out human interaction 24 hours a day. And then there's the rest of us <laughs> who uh, are introverted, and our favorite place is our study or our living room, and we really don't seek out a lot of interaction with other people. But in general, whether you're an extrovert or introvert, you have a need for friendships. The question then is why? Well, there's a number of reasons. I think the most obvious is God created us that way. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, after God had created, as we saw last Sunday, his highest creation, man, then the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. And so then God, of course, created a helpmate for Adam, called her Eve. And, but for the rest of us, we have to choose our friends, and we have to choose our, our mates. Um, but God created us with that need to have human interaction and friendships. And secondly, we need friends because um, this world is hard, isn't it? And we need others to help get through it. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times, not just the good times, at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. You find out in your times of trouble who your friends are, and you find out that blood is thicker than water, that your family is your family. So, life's hard. We need help. Thirdly, the Bible teaches that as humans, certainly as Christians, we are stronger and more productive together than alone. If you read the Gospels, you'll take notice, Jesus commissioned his disciples to take the gospel into the world. He sent them out in pairs, never alone. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, also written by Solomon, also conveys wisdom concerning friendship. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls, and there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. 
Now, when's the last time you heard those verses read outside of a marriage ceremony? But the immediate context from Ecclesiastes 4 is not a wedding ceremony. He's just speaking of the need that every human has for friendship and companionship. And he's recognizing what God said of Adam is true of all of us. It's not good for us to be alone. And that there is safety, there is security, there is warmth in being around another person, having a close, intimate friends. And uh, so those are three reasons that I can think of, of, of the importance of friendship from the Scripture. God created us that way. Life is hard, and we're more productive together than alone. But I don't think we need to spend any more time convincing you we need friends. We all know that. But let's talk about the influence of friendship. Again, our text, verse 20. One who walks with wise people will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, there are variations of that proverb in almost every culture on planet Earth. For example, in, in the English language, we have birds of a feather flock together, right? That is, if you surround yourself with good and godly influences, you are likely to become like them. But if you surround yourself with foolish people who make poor choices, you're likely to follow suit. And that's all this is saying. One who walks with wise people will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. It's because of the natural human instinct to seek companionship that it is so important that we choose the right sorts of companions. And this is what Solomon's doing. He's saying to his young son, not always going to be there to help you choose the right path. There are going to be other influences in your life. Make sure that you choose those friends who are going to influence you from the right group. And he divides the choice into two broad categories. I know you're going to have friends, son. You have to choose them out of these two groups. You're going to choose them out of a group of people that he calls the wise, or you're going to choose them out of a group of people he calls the foolish. He unmistakably wants his son to choose his friends from out of the wise. And I look around the parents and grandparents and others, aunts and uncles here today, as you think about the children in your life that you love, the young people, all of you can say the same. You want those young people to choose friends who will help them along their path of sanctification and not harm them. Now, our former pastor, Leroy Patterson, had some proverbs of his own, and I called them Leroyisms. And as uh, Tony was standing here a moment ago, and as he did in the second service with families who were dedicating their children, I, I thought of when Dr. Patterson used to do that, Tony, and he would often say that, all right, parents, one of your most important tasks as a parent is to choose your children's friends without them knowing what you're doing. And he said that with a twinkle in his eye, and a wry grin, but he meant it. He understood how important your children's friends and how much influence they have in their lives. Now, when your children are very small, like the ones we dedicated today, it's pretty easy. They can't drive themselves to see their friends yet, and so it's easy to make sure that the people that surround them are, are good influences. As they grow older, it becomes more and more difficult. That's why it's important you've got to train them how to choose their own friends. And to do that, we need discernment as parents. Now, there's about six things I think that we can do to help make these decisions. Number one, uh, we need to be aware of where, their where our children go and with whom they go. Don't just 
send your children out into the world without any direction. You say, well, I'm invading their privacy. So what? <laughs> Invade their privacy. Uh, be reasonable. And as they grow older, you want to help them to have more and more independence, but especially when they're very young. Look, we know there are people in the world that are no good, that are out to harm your children, who are under the authority and power of Satan. Know where they go and with whom they go. Secondly, listen carefully to how they talk. If they start using words and phrases and language that you know they didn't learn in your home, start asking questions. We don't talk that way here. Where did, where did you hear that kind of talk? Now, don't be naive about technology either. And I know the staff is rolling their eyes right now because they think I'm naive about technology. Because on the third floor, I, I'm always asking for help. I, I'll give you guys a little secret. It's only half true. I figured out 20 years ago that if I admit it, I know how to run a machine, they expect me to do it myself. <laughs> now, I, I don't know a lot about technology, but I know enough to find out where my kids are going on social media and how they are interacting. And so don't be naive. You need to know at least as much as they do. And then here's something positive you can do. Invite wise people into their lives. Sunday school teachers. and Bring people into your home for a meal. We, we constantly are bringing people into our home or going to other people's homes that, that we believe are wise, that can help our children, because we want to put in front of them all the time what it looks like and what it sounds like to be a wise person. And then, of course, talk, talk, talk to your kids. When you see something on the television or commercial that's contrary to what you're teaching them through the Word of God, don't just get mad and yell at TV. Turn it off and talk about what they saw and why we don't believe that or why we don't behave that way, why the Bible speaks differently. And then after you talk, 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 pray, pray, pray. Don't be naive. We have an enemy in the world. The Bible says he seeks to kill and destroy. He would love nothing better than destroy your child's life and future and witness for the Lord Jesus so it's a dangerous and dark world we send them into. We need to invest in them at the very earliest ages. And I congratulate these parents who are dedicating themselves to this task. And our church is challenged with praying for all the parents in our church. But I would say to any parent that the best thing you can do to make sure that your child chooses good and godly and wise friends is to make sure their local church is the epicenter of their life. I didn't say a compartment of their life. I didn't say something that competes with their recreation and their academics. I said the best thing that you can do to make sure your children choose wise friends is to make church the epicenter of their life. And church, uh, this local church has a covenant. And I told you a couple weeks ago that's really what I'm doing this summer is walking through our church covenant talking about what we owe to one another in the context of the local church. Well, I looked in vain this week to find an article in our church covenant on how to choose a friend, but it's in there and it's uh, implied. When, when you join a local church, you are by nature joining with other Christians, aren't you? And you're promising to be a good friend because a friend is faithful. A friend holds us accountable to the covenants 
and the promises that we made. So, so a church covenant is just a group of people who have agreed together um, to help one another walk this path of life in the context of a common faith in Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. That's what distinguishes the church primarily from any civic organization is that what is common to all of us is not that we live in the same geographic region, that we come from the same backgrounds, we have the same educational level, the same interest even. What is the common denominator of every member of this church, and it must be, is a common faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which makes us part of the same family, which makes us owe certain things to one another. And a covenant is an attempt to articulate to one another and hold one another accountable of what we owe to one another, how to be a good friend. So, so let's get real practical. How to look for your closest friends or your child's closest friend? Well, I think it begins by ruling out that category he called the foolish. They have to be discerning and perceive foolish people so they can avoid them. Um, number one, we are to avoid people as our closest friends who hab habitually say foolish things. So when you're around people, you're deciding whether or not to make them a big part of your life. Listen to how they talk. Proverbs 18.2 says, Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. So if you have a, a person and they reject the things of God in place of their own opinions, and their most quoted person in their vocabulary is themselves, then that's not a person that you want to have as your closest friend. Now pay close attention, particularly close attention, about how they talk about the Bible and the things of God. Are they reverent? Are they blasphemous? Are they flippant and overly familiar with the name of the Lord Jesus? Or do they have a holy respect? The Bible says a fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the most blasphemous thing a person can do. Look at God's creation, enjoy his blessings every day and say, eh, just happened. Or worse, I did it, I deserve it. Foolish in his heart, there's no God. But even professing Christians who maybe can quote their catechism and get all the answers right can be what theologians call practically righteous. They say they believe in God and the things of God, but in their behavior and in practice, they don't live any differently than an avowed atheist. Paul knew some of those people, and he warned his spiritual son, Timothy, to stay away from him, 2 Timothy 3. They have a form of godliness but deny its power, have nothing to do with such people, Paul tells Timothy. Further, the scripture says we're to avoid a gossip. Those who betray confidence is the last thing you need in a friend, someone that you need to tell your deepest, darkest secrets to is someone who talks too much. Avoid a gossip. And the scripture says avoid an angry person. Avoid an angry person. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered, Proverbs 22, 24 says. And then, of course, we are not to be closest friends with those who habitually make foolish choices. We've talked about three of those foolish choices over the last three consecutive Sundays. Those who are habitually sexually immoral, those who habitually abuse drugs and alcohol, those who habitually pursue violence and physical harm to another person. And it's not to say if those people are lost, we don't love them and we don't reach out to them through evangelism, but we do not allow their behavior to influence us. 
1 Corinthians 15, 33, Paul says it this way, don't you know that bad company corrupts good morals? It's a simple proverb that we find in every culture. So, that's the negative way to look at it, what not to look for in a friend. But we want to be optimistic and positive. What are the positive traits to help your kids and grandkids look for when choosing their friends? Well, I divide them into three. There are many more than that. But basically, three broad categories. Number one, you want someone who is high in character. That simply means a person that is seeking to obey God. Now, you didn't hear me say, find a person who's perfect. If we wait for a friend that's perfect, we'll be friendless for the rest of our lives. Find a person whose desire and ambition is upward and to the right when it comes to sanctification. They're not perfect, but they want to be. They want to please God in all things. The Bible says it's iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. If you take two people that are both going hard after the Lord, through their interaction, their conversation, their communication, they're like iron hitting on iron, they're going to sharpen one another. So Solomon seems to be saying, through your friendships, one of two things is going to happen. One, you're going to grow sharper, which means more useful in the hands of the Lord, or you're going to grow duller, which means less useful in the hands of the Lord. As Christians, we want to be more and more useful, don't we, though, to the Lord. And one of the things that contributes to our usefulness is who informs our decision, who influences our lives, namely our closest friends. So you're looking for a person of high moral character, one who's going hard after the things of God. Two, you're looking for a person that has the ability to show agape love. Now, that word love is so frustrating because it means so many things depending on the context, right? My kids say, I love Tony the Tiger cereal, or I love my mom. Those are two very different things, but we have one word in common to describe them. When I say a person who is loving, I mean someone, yes, who shows tender affection, but someone who's willing to forgive and to put another person's interest ahead of their own habitually. Now, if you're looking for someone like that, a relationship like that in the Bible, I don't think you can do better than the story of David and Jonathan. They seem to be about the same age. They had a lot of the same people in common in their lives. Uh, they probably competed against one another growing up. And yet, uh, when it came down to it, they loved one another. Each was willing to sacrifice for the benefit of the other. They were willing to forgive each other. That's the kind of affection and love you're looking for. And in that kind of loving relationship, there's an incredible amount of freedom. Don't you find it's incredibly relaxing to be in the presence of your oldest and dearest friend, where you can be absolutely yourself without fear of judgment? That's the kind of friend you're looking for. There's an old Indian proverb that says, he who has a true friend never needs a mirror person that really has yourself, your interest at heart is going to tell you when you've got a piece of spinach between your front two teeth before you embarrass yourself in public. Um, and, and so that's the kind of people we need to have in our life who can speak the truth to us and we can accept even criticism from them because they have exhibited that the reason they're doing it is out of love and our interest. So character, love, and I think maybe the most important trait you're looking for in a friend is fidelity faithfulness. My oldest and dearest friend's son recently joined the Marine Corps, and his dad is incredibly proud of him. 
as he has every right to be. Most of you know that the Marine Corps motto is Semper Fi, Semper Fidelis, which means always faithful. I can't think of a better definition for Christian friendship. What you're looking for to help your children find and friends is someone who is always faithful. It's been said before that a true friend comes in when everyone else goes out. Always faithful in every weather. Now, if you want a friend like that, someone of high character, someone who can express genuine agape love, and someone who's faithful to the end, you need to become a friend like that. Now, every once in a while, I will hear uh, someone say about this church or another church they visited or some restaurant they go to, they'll say, those are the most unfriendly people I've ever met. Have you noticed that the people that are always complaining about other people being unfriendly are the most unfriendly people in the world? <laughs> They're cold and closed off, and they constantly are accusing other people of not being friendly and warm towards them. Here's what the Bible says, Proverbs 18, 24. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. And there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And so if you want to have friends like I've described, you need to be a friend like I've described. Well, um, you don't have to be a seminary graduate to put together by now that the kind of person I've just described who is high in character, loves self-sacrificially, and is always faithful, looks a whole lot like Jesus Christ. And that really ultimately is what you're wanting your children to look for in a friend, somebody who is growing into the image of Jesus all the time. They're growing in sanctification. Now, you find a person that has a desire to be like Jesus, you spend as much time with them as you can. If you find a young person about the same age as your child who wants to be like Jesus, you make sure they have a lot of play dates and that they spend as much time as possible with them. But uh, as we're looking for those kinds of friends in our lives, Probably the most important thing the Bible says about friendship, and it just boggles my mind every time I think about it, it's an amazing thing that Jesus Christ invites sinners like us to be his friend. He invites us to be his friend. That's, that's the final thing I want to see today. Third point, the invitation to friendship. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 15. And a lot of you think of John 15 in terms of I am the vine, you are the branches. And that's true, but if you'll come to verse 12, in this chapter of John's gospel, chapter 15, he says something about friendship and Christians' relationship to one another and his relationship as a friend of sinners. John 15, verse 12, Jesus is speaking. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his what? Friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Now that's an incredible set of verses there. Jesus talking to his disciples says, I, I'm no longer putting you in the category of a slave. Now that is a proper category. That's what Paul described himself as, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
He was a slave of Jesus Christ. We've been purchased out of the slave market of sin. We were um, slaves and entrapped by our own sinfulness. And through the blood of Jesus, we've been set free. And Paul viewed himself now as the voluntary um, slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus says when he thinks about those he's redeemed, the first relationship he thinks of is friendship. He no longer calls us slaves, but, but friends. Now, think about it. Is Jesus a person you want to have a friendship with? <laughs> I'd hope so. Because remember what we said. What are the characteristics you're looking for in your closest friend? Character, love, and fidelity. Let's just walk through those to see if Jesus checks those boxes. Is Jesus high in character? <laughs> yes. He is the standard of righteousness. He is perfect in every way. The only sinless one who has ever lived. Is Jesus known for his love? The Bible says God is love. He is the standard of love. In fact, Jesus points out that the highest example of love in human understanding is when one person would die in place of another. Isn't that what Jesus did? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is, when he gave his Son... He didn't give Jesus just to be a moral example. He gave Jesus to die in our place. He is the once for all substitute taking on the sin that we deserve. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So of course, Jesus is high in character. He's perfect, but also of course, he's loving. He forgives. He puts our interest ahead of his own. And when he describes how we're to love other people, men, he says to husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So the example, he keeps coming back to the absolute irrefutable proof that Jesus loves us is the cross. But then there's one more. I said the most important thing to look for in a friend is, is faithfulness. What did Jesus say to his disciples concerning his faithfulness. What does God say in the Old Testament about his faithfulness to his people? He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, it's one thing for one of your earthly friends to tell you, I've always got your back. We need people like that. But when the God of heaven, who cannot and has not ever lied, who is more powerful than any opposition that could ever come against you and your friendship says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You can believe it. You can take it to the bank. And we have a friend in Jesus who is perfect in character, perfect in love, and perfect in faithfulness. And that amazing truth caused the hymn writer to write years ago, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our griefs and sins he takes upon himself. And where did Jesus say that? He said it through the pen of the apostles when they said, that uh, cast all your cares, your burdens upon him because he cares for you. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Well, um, there may be someone here today, someone watching by internet, one of the other rooms by video. Um, you say, well, no one would want to be my friend. If they knew, God would never want to be my friend. The things I've done, the things I've thought, the things that have come out of my mouth. Well, here's what the Bible teaches about God's grace. God's grace is greater than our sin. 
one of the accusations that the Pharisees made against Jesus, thinking they were putting him down, was this. This man is a friend of sinners. Thank God he is, right? Because that's all of us. If Jesus uh, had any friends, it had to come of that pool of sinners. Because Romans 3.23 says, we're all sinners. And we fall short of the glory of God. And, and rather than distancing himself from us and isolating himself in his perfect holiness, the scripture says that he condescended, according to Philippians chapter 4. He left the glories of heaven and he emptied himself of the prerogatives of heaven. And he was born in a humble home to humble parents. He grew up tempted in every way that you and I are. He didn't live in quarantine in an antiseptic room sequestered away from all of us. He became like us in one sense, that he got hungry, and he got sleepy, and he got tired, but he remained different in us in this way, is that he was attempted in always as we are, yet without sin. Christ died in our place. And now, because he has literally been resurrected from the grave, and now that he's proclaimed himself victorious, over death and hell, he invites you to be his friend. How do you be a friend of Jesus? You accept him on his terms, which are empty hands and outturned pockets. Usually when we're choosing friends, we, we like to um, bring something to the table. And, and we choose life partners and we choose friends because we complement each other, right? He's good in this area, she's good in this area, and together they... they that's not how salvation works. We don't bring anything to the table that Jesus needs or is lacking in. What we do when we become a friend of Jesus is we admit we don't have anything to bring to the table and we receive as a gift his righteousness imputed to us. And so if you're here today and you want to be a friend of Jesus, it begins with humility. It begins with recognition that his assessment of you is true. You are a sinner. You are deserving of his wrath. And then you receive as a gift what he did in your place through his death, burial, and resurrection. And then you accept his invitation to be his friend and follow him the rest of your life in humble obedience. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I don't have to convince people who live in this world that we need friends. You made us that way. It's a hard world. We need help getting through it. And Father, through experience, we know how valuable a true friend is. Fathers, I think about our children, our youth, our college students who will be going back to school in the fall. Father, they're going to have another opportunity to choose friends and those who they're closest to. Father, I pray that every parent who's a member of this church would commit to helping their children choose their friends. Setting a good example for that in our own lives. Bringing wise and godly people into their lives. Making sure that their commitment to this local church is the epicenter of their life and not some small component part. Father, I pray as these young people grow up together in the context of this church that they would have the same experience that I did from young men that you brought into my life at the most important times, that iron would indeed sharpen iron, that all of us, Lord, will become the fittest and sharpest and most useful implement in your hand 
that we can possibly be. Father, we pray for the lost, those that the Bible describes as foolishness, caring nothing for the things of God, because as Paul said, such were some of us. We came out of darkness. You saved us. You breathed life into our spirit, and you opened our blind eyes. May we be used, Father, to tell that good news to those around us this year. Father, I pray for our church family that we would take seriously the church covenant, the promises that we've made to be good friends to one another, to hold one another accountable, to be a mirror to one another in Christian love. Father, then I pray if there's even one here today who knows you not in the free pardon of sin, that today would be the day of salvation, that you'd grant some here faith and repentance. Do it, Lord, for your own name's sake, for your own glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.